Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen classes and trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Dr. Walter Longo is the director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles and of the Program on Longevity and Cancer at IFOM, Molecular Oncology FIRC Institute in Milan. His studies focus on the fundamental mechanisms of aging in simple organisms and mice and on translating the results to benefit humans. He's known as one of the premier experts on fasting and is the best-selling author of The Longevity Diet. Discover the new science behind stem cell activation and regeneration to slow aging, fight disease, and optimize weight. Walter, welcome. Thanks for having me. So you've got this great new book out, The Longevity Diet, which sounds pretty good to me and a lot of people are talking about and which everyone has to pick up. Has me curious. What got you into studying? You're like the, one of the guys. Like people think about like longevity and fasting, and you're one of the guys. How did you get interested in this stuff? Mm, that's uh, pretty much all I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> you were a little kid. You were fascinated by longevity? Uh, no, no, no. I was fascinated by music, actually. I was a, a rock uh, guitar player. I came to the U.S. Uh, wanting to do that. Where did you grow up? In uh, Genova, Italy, on the coast uh, near France. And, um, yeah, I got to all the way to the, my second year in, in uh, music school, which was the University of North Texas, a great... Uh, University of North Texas. Yes. So you went from Italy to the University of North Texas. Yeah, to Chicago first, okay. where I did some training in uh, bebop, believe it or not. Really? Can and, you do uh, something for us? <laughs> well, you Maybe know, at the end. Maybe at the end. And um, yeah, then then went to music school, and uh, in the second year they asked me to uh, direct a marching band, and I said there is no way I'm doing that. <laughs> and uh, well, there was a requirement, and, and so I always obviously had in the back of my mind aging for some reason. 
and uh, that was the opportunity. And as soon as they said that, I said, oh, I'm just going to go to a biochemistry department and ask them if I can switch over. And that's what I did. And that's, uh, and, and the reasoning, again, was, was to study aging. And I just thought it was a great um, scientific challenge. Um, and at the same time, it was a great medical challenge. And, and I, I just thought there's nothing else that's going to beat this, at least for me. So when you started, where were we in terms of the science and what people were talking about with regards to aging, if anything, and how has that evolved? Yes, I mean, that's probably like one of the, by far the biggest change in history that has, <laughs> has happened since then, you know. So um, when uh, I first got to UCLA in 92 and started my PhD in biochemistry, starting aging, um, there was really nothing known. There was not a single gene that was known to regulate aging in any organism. So it was pretty much complete darkness uh, in the sense that um, there is a lot of speculation and uh, people were comparing, let's say, old mouse and a young mouse and old what's mouse, different. And, mouse, fat and, mouse, uh, thin mouse. <laughs> yeah, or old person and young person, take right. the blood. But it, it really didn't, didn't tell you anything. You know, it just told you that things are different. And, um, and so that's when I think the, the, the field of the genetics of aging started. And, uh, and we, I think we played a, a significant contribution in the field. And in fact, I was working with Roy Walford, who's a, you know, a, me- a medical doctor at UCLA. And he was, one of the wor- well, he was the world leading figure in nutrition for longevity at the time. But um, I, after two years in his lab, I, I realized I had to go back to molecular uh, biology, because the, uh, the research in his lab, uh, although uh, however fascinating it was, it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> we were not just, it was too complicated to understand our human age, starting with humans or mice. And so I switched back to a unicellular organism, uh, Baker's yeast, you know, the yeast that you use to make bread, essentially, which is one of the most studied uh, organisms uh, in biochemistry and molecular biology. And of course, that was a big gamble. People thought, why would you possibly study so, something so simple? You're studying bread. Yeah, you're studying <laughs> bread. Like, well, this is not going anywhere. But uh, sure enough, it was exactly the right uh, move. And so we identified two of the key um, pro-aging pathways. One is called Taurus canase, which is now probably recognized as being the, one of the most important uh, um, aging pathways in all organisms. And the other one was the RAS-PKA, the sugar pathway. So first is the protein pathway. And um, so meaning the genes that are activated when you have high protein, protein in your diet. And the second one is the RAS-PKA, which is the genes that are activated when you have high sugar in your diet, right? So, and, um, and so there was, and, and still is the foundation for almost everything we do here. So it's this idea of turning off and turning on genes, epigenetics to some degree. Yes, gen- genetic and epigenetic. So you, um, um, if you turn on these genes, um, the, the system, the organism gets into an accelerated aging mode. It also gets in a weaker mode, so it's less protected and it ages more quickly. So, for example, damage in the DNA goes up and the repair goes down. And um, so there's many things that happen, but certainly the main thing is the system is weaker and aging more quickly when you have lots of proteins and sugars. So this is a huge thing. Um, I mean, the, the of course, the, the implications, how you can use them, we can sure. talk about it. 
are, uh, of course, they could change completely the way uh, we get sick or not, and the way you know you can apply to almost anything. We're applying it now to cancer patients receiving chemotherapy. We're applying it to multiple sclerosis patients, Alzheimer, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, a lot of this is still um, in the early stages, but certainly we're in clinical trials and and um, and we see how eventually. Uh, it could be something that uh, accompanies drugs, sure. uh, and so in many cases, probably substitutes of drugs. So you're in the lab. You're studying this for twenty plus twenty five years now. And what are some of the patterns you're starting to see with the people who are living the longest, healthiest, happiest lives? Yeah, the, the, I mean, that, that gets tricky because some people uh, live longer because uh, they have the right genes. Sure. And so genetics, uh, so if we were like number genetics, is definitely plays a role. But, yeah. but also this idea you can, you know, certain, certain, certain lifestyle choices can turn on and off these genes, accelerate things or decelerate things. Yes, absolutely. But um, so... You know, some somebody like Emma Morano, who I followed uh, up to uh, a few months ago. She was the oldest person in the world. She was 117. Wow, where she and live? She lived in northern Italy, in uh, Lago Maggiore, and uh, in a place called Verbania. And uh, she did not have. A, I mean, she had a pretty good diet uh, for the first, uh, say, 70, 80 years <laughs> of her life. Uh, then she started, uh, you know, eating a lot of eggs and a lot of meat. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, but then, if you look at her brothers and sisters, they were all—they um, all made it to uh, over the age of 90, and some over the age of 100. And you, when you see that, you know that the chances of this being um, this effect being non-genetic is, is very slim. Right? So most likely, um, she was one of the rare people that could do almost anything and still make it to to a very old age. Um, now, for everybody else, the the diet. And, and we, you can tell that when you do experiments on any organism, um, the diet is by far the most powerful effect. Even much, uh, most people don't realize, even much more powerful than exercise. Um, can't exercise your way out of a bad diet, as Mark Hyman will say. Yeah, you cannot. And uh, um, But also if you compare what the exercise can do, let's say in animal studies and, the, and the, what the... Uh, um, diet can do, you can uh, clearly see, for example, something called calorie restriction that my first mentor was was a guru of is the reduction of calories by 30% and um, chronically. So you always do this. And this has been recognized for many, many years as something that can dramatically affect uh, uh, lifespan. Now, it's not a good idea because it, it just brings also a lot of problems, but there's been never an exercise regimen that has that kind of powerful effect in the 30, 40% lifespan extension range. Wow. Um, so so just, to, just to compare the two. And of course, exercise is, is important, but uh, not as powerful as... Um, so you talk about uh, the, the five exercise. pillars of longevity, and you explain to people, what are those pillars? Yeah, well, first of all, the five pillars really came uh, from the, the need to com- combat chaos meaning that there's so many books on nutrition and so yes. many opinions, and you know anybody that, that, that has an opinion can write a book on it. And that's really doing tremendous damage. Um, and so the five pillars was a way to say, um, like 
you know, I talk about in the book, for example, building a plane, right? You, you wouldn't buy the plane that anybody built. You, you want Boeing or, or Airbus to make the, sure. the, the plane you fly on. Why? What well, is a long tradition? And there's also a lot of uh, accountability. I mean, their planes rarely come down, right? Sure, and they don't. They, they not, have not a lot anymore. of redundancy systems. It's amazing how, how, they, how safe how safe flying they are. is. Exactly. Out. So I think for nutrition, it's the same way. And the five pillars, uh, for example, one pillar is epidemiological studies. Uh, very important. But unfortunately, many books are written only in epidemiological <coughs> studies. And these are, of course, are studies of, of large population. What if you take a, you know, 50,000 people that eat this way versus 50,000 people that eat another way? Uh, who does better? And the other pillar are clinical studies. Um, uh, what if you, um, for example, one, one study that I cite a lot in the book is this uh, study by a group in Spain that took thousands of people and put them on a low-fat diet and thousands of people and randomized them to a olive oil, high olive oil, high nut content diet. So it was... Uh, a relatively high-fat diet, but of certain like a, fats. Like a Mediterranean diet. It, it was Mediterranean, but with very high levels of olive oil and not, or nuts. And uh, so that's the kind of uh, studies that are also important. For what happened the, to those people? The um, in, uh, Within five years, they had to stop the study because the people on the olive oil were doing so much better than the, than the controls on the low-fat diet. Wow. Uh, so they had Olive oil for the win. Yeah, yeah. So olive oil and nuts, but, but uh, olive oil was very effective both in cardiovascular mortality, and this was a group that had uh, was selected for being at risk for cardiovascular disease, and uh, cardiovascular mortality, but also overall mortality. So both were affected by the very high. They were uh, drinking almost a liter of. Uh, um, of olive oil per week, uh, per week, yes. So l- lots of it, lots of it every day. Uh, so that was that was good, or you're saying it was bad for cardiovascular, or good? Good, good, good. yeah. Wow. So yeah, it was good, you know. And 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 again, the control group was on a low fat diet, which is one of the recommended ones sure. for for cardiovascular diseases, right? So, um, so that's number two pillar. And number three pillar is uh, basic science uh, focused on uh, aging, what I call juventology. And I, I came up with this word because um, um, I just didn't like the, the focus on gerontology, so the process of getting old. And to me, um, it wasn't so important uh, how we get old. Uh, it was much, much more important how do we stay young. Sure. And um, and so that's what we learn also from from the genetics of aging research. Um, you can reprogram a system. So, for example, under certain condition, a system, an organism can make the decision: I want to live a short life and reproduce a lot, right? Then, um, the, and this is most organism. Or you can make the decision: I want to live a long time and take my time reproducing. So, either way, uh, for evolution, is good. Uh, you're going to have offspring and, and you're successful. Um, but now in, in the second case, the youth, the juventology, the youth, youthful program lasts maybe three, four times longer. And that's where, you know, having this, seeing this in simple, simple organisms, both in bacteria and in yeast, um, I knew that this was probably the, the way to go. So anyways, the pillar is really about how do you use billions of years of evolution to reprogram a system into having an extend uh, youth 
time uh, or youthful time, if you want to call it that. And, um, and, you know, and this is very, very important uh, um, because, uh, you know, if you try to do it by implementing uh, and, and trying to figure out everything, it'll take you hundreds of years. Uh, but if you let evolution uh, teach you why is it that a, uh, a mouse lives two and a half years and gets cancer starting at one and a half years and we live 80 years and we get cancer starting at 40 or 50, right? So these are... In why one is case, it? Do you have the answer? Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the answer is, is that um, there's different programs, right? The, the youthful program for a mouse is one and a half years. Evolution protects the, the force of natural selection is very high because you know most of the uh, the offspring are, are generated during the one and a half years, right? So it's really relevant after that if if it, the mouse ages. For people, if that happened in one and a half years, we would be we would have been extinct a long time ago. Sure, sure, right? sure. So now you have to extend it and say keep it forty years because that's going to guarantee the maximizes the number of, of children and also maybe grandchildren, let's say, that, that sure. you have a role in both, right? So now you're exploding this, uh, exploiting these billions of years of development of a program. Imagine like engineers working on a, on a perfect program to keep somebody alive and perfect, in sure. perfect condition for 40 years, right? So that's, that's pillar three. And pillar four is um, centenarian studies. Uh, so if you go to Okinawa, Sardinia, Italy, Loma Linda, California, and Calabria, Italy, and, and a bunch of other places. You know, if you look at the people that have longest lifespan, what do they do, and and how does this match? What part of this matches the science? You know, so for example, um, a lot of these uh, areas may be very long lived, but may be frail. We may have people that are frail, weak when they're old, right? Sure. And um, and now we're in the in the lab. We're figuring out, for example, w the same diet that is very beneficial for somebody up to age 65, 70 is not very beneficial to the same person when they're 80, 90. Uh, so they have to in, uh, change back now to maybe something that would be viewed as less uh, uh, protective. For example, proteins. Low-level protein is protective up to a certain age. But then you have to increase that the level, and you might also have to increase the the consumption of uh, um, ingredients like or foods like eggs that uh, are not necessarily associated with longevity earlier on. And, and the fifth pillar is complex system. So how does a car or a plane age, and uh, how do you use that to uh, how do you explore this knowledge of something that we build? Uh, to then um, apply it to to a complex system like like the human uh, body. So what do we do other than so I think you know there's a piece of this is okay I can go get you know 23andMe or someone out there and get my DNA and look at my genes and then take it to an educated uh, doctor and, and or maybe read your book and read some literature and say like okay like I can I, I want to turn this I'm aware of this I want to turn this one off, turn this one on, and so on, but which is an individualized approach, which is, is a huge part of this. And what are some of the practices that you would say are generally pretty good for everybody? Yeah, so the personalization, of course, is good, but uh, we're still far away, I think, from, uh, from applying in a way that, is, that beats, let's say, the general approach. And so the general approach, 
I think is still by far the best one. And the general approach is really the common denominator that I, that I was talking about just now. Um, so for example, uh, if you look at all these five pillars, you come up with a low-protein diet, vegan, pescatarian, so meaning the vegetable plus, plus fish, maybe fish a couple of times a week. You also come up with a high-nourishment diet. It's very important, meaning that most people are, are lacking vitamins, minerals, Nutrient essential fatty acids. Yeah. And that's a mistake made by a lot of people. This is why the vegan population don't necessarily do very well when they're compared. They do better usually, but sometimes they don't when they're compared to the people eating a lot of meat. Because um, you're eating like fake vegan food, like well, processed food? No, no. Or is be, it? I, well, nobody knows, but the suspicion is that they go from one problem to the other. So the one problem, which is the meat, the proteins, etc., the sure. hormones, to then malnourishment. And now uh, the huh. body does not get all that it needs. For example, B12, if you're vegan, yeah, you can take pills, but you know, now the pills, how many pills are you going to take? Are you sure. going to take omega-3 pills and, and calcium? So as you move uh, from one bad diet to a very restricted diet, um, then you can have as many problems as you had before. And that's why nourishment is also a very important part of the, the longevity diet. And, um, so you're eating a lot of vegetables, you're eating some fish, you're eating some, you're, you're not eating, eating a lot of meat. You're eating a lot of legumes, right? Because um, a controversial one in some spaces. Controversial, <laughs> well, controversial only if you look at uh, um, in one pillar uh, or if you look at people that may be sensitive to them, right? Sure. Meaning that, and this is typical, um, you know, looking at one pillar and say, because if you look at one pillar, everything is toxic, even water. Um, and sure. uh, and the legumes, if you look around the world, for example, um, and you get epidemiological data in the United States, everywhere else, the, the people consuming a lot of uh, legumes are doing very, very, very well. And um, now, with everything, you may be allergic or you may have sensitivities to it, and then it's a different story, like gluten, right? Sure, um, that, that's where I was going to go next. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, you know... And, but in the book, I talk about, you know, a low gluten diet. And for most people, uh, again, looking around the world, all these people made it to record longevity. They all had gluten. Uh, but so not the, a ton. Not a ton, exactly. And are they eating what type of gluten? Like some people will preach about, you know, they're having sourdough or it's, you know, it's non-GMO. They're eating in Europe. There's a difference with the gluten. It's not as contaminated. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, but the point is, for example, in the book, I talk an ideal, about an ideal dish is 50 grams of rice or pasta or gluten-containing uh, food. And that's what you have the whole day. Uh, maybe a little bit more uh, somewhere else. So, so if you pick low-gluten um, uh, starches and bread, pasta, etc., and then you have a limited amount. The great majority of people will not have a problem. Now, some will have a problem, and for those, then you're gonna have to go on a gluten-free sure. diet. But you know, the mistake that a lot of people are making is is identifying something that can be bad for for a percentage of the people, and then make it a case. Uh, for everybody else, not understanding that you got to eat something, right? Sure. And so if you start avoiding, and you have to eat something that you like, because otherwise you're going to abandon it within a year or two. So you have to have something that you can stick with your life. This is why I talk about in, in the book, eat 
based on what we discussed, but also look at what your grandparents used to eat. Sure. Know? And most grandparents did have gluten. Very Michael Pollan-like, eat food, not, not too much, mostly plants. Uh, yes, and, and, um, but, but uh, I mean, of course, I don't say eat what your grandparents eat. I say, uh, look at the other four pillars. Right. And then go find among the, the ingredients and the complex, um, uh, relatively complex uh, solutions from those four pillars. Then go find uh, what your grandparents also did. You know? So what about fats? Well, fats are, are very good if they come from the right places. Also, the so olive oil. Olive oil, avocados, I'm assuming. Well, avocado, uh, probably not. You're going right? to break a lot of hearts. Yeah. I, Man. Avocado. This, well, is, this I mean, is where the interview goes south. Yeah, yeah. You're killing me. I have like an avocado a day. Two yeah, avocados. Yeah, yeah. So avocados. Wait, I just want to. I just want to take a moment for myself to brace my. Yeah, yeah. So avocados. No. Well, I mean, it, look at it this way. If in in the book I talk about uh, lactose intolerance. Right? Sure. If your if your grandfather was from Norway, uh, most likely you're lactose tolerant, so you can drink milk and, and, sure. and nothing happened to you. If your grandfather and grandmother were from Japan or, or Sicily, most likely you're lactose intolerant. Right? Sure. So now avocado, it may very well be that it doesn't bother anybody. It's not like milk and it would be fine for everybody. But it could also be that after 20 years or 10 years of avocado, you start developing autoimmunities like gluten, right? So all of a sudden, your body is exposed to something that your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have never seen before. So you could uh, develop like an autoimmune avocado? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is what happened with gluten, right? You you start attacking something that you used to see a much lower level. Now, all of a sudden... How do you know if this is happening? We don't know. What we know is that... I feel like this is the biggest... New, like, this is a huge... This is like people love... And why I'm like sticking on this is... Generally, you know, we talk about, we, we joke with avocados, we love avocados. It's like one of those foods that you know, people universally love. Vegan, paleo, omnivore, it's, it's a healthy fat, it's fun, it's playful. It's like the one thing that like everyone can sort of agree on. But Well, I mean, and again, it may be the avocado doesn't do anything. That's not the point. The point is more like, um, can I get something that in fact is as good? You know, so if you eat some, some nuts, and you eat vegetables, there is no reason to have avocado. Now, you know, having avocado once in a while, it's okay, but having lots of avocado just puts your system in a position where, you know, sooner or later, uh, it may be recognized as foreign. So uh, I guess, is it the idea that too much of something could be a bad thing, or is it specific to avocados that you see in your research that... No, 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 no. We haven't done research on avocado. So again, avocado may be perfectly fine. It's just not something that your grandparents ate. And, and historically, it's not something that was common at the table of the people that came before you. So there has been no filter uh, for avocado. Understood. And, and, and also, there is the, the system may, like with a virus or other invading agent, may recognize it as foreign and try to attack it. Got it. So it's like a new thing. Like we weren't, I understood. Your point is ancestors weren't eating this stuff. So we don't really know if this is long. Exactly. And so would like coconut oil, coconut oil fall in that category as well? And coconut oil could also uh, fall in that category. But olive oil, nuts, 
good. We've got some data there. Well, you know, if something is being consumed for hundreds of years and and everybody was fine with it and nobody um, developed, uh, I mean, for, for, for example, nuts, a lot of people have allergies, right? Sure. And, and have intolerances. So you, you, you know that um, you have to watch for it. And, and, no, and if you start developing that, uh, you have to stop eating nuts, you know. And, and that's the same with, with avocado. But, but my issue is much more than avocado is with having this exotic diet, right. you know, all the time. Right. You know, there is no reason to do that. It's much better also for the environment uh, to go look at your backyard and say, what have we always been eating that is avocado-like, but sure. it happens to be, uh, you know, if your, your grandparents were from Ireland, what did they eat all the time that, that may provide? So what the, are some of those like new foods? You know, it's like if I think of like the new hot fats, you've got, you know, avocado, you've got Let's say quinoa, kale, uh, curcumin. Uh, I mean, so there is a lot of, and every two months there is a new one coming in and everybody, I think in, in, it's entertaining to me because they, they might go look at the protein, in, uh, you know, content and of quinoa, for example. Well, there is no reason to go to quinoa to get protein. You know, legumes have plenty of proteins and, and even if so you beans avoid over quinoa. Well, beans that your your family uh, and, and, and again, once you identify the type of foods that uh, they were consuming all the time and that you like, um, you don't need to keep looking. I mean, it, it takes some effort for a couple of months trying to figure out what is it that, um, that I'm in tune with. I use this word in the book. Um, and then once you have those 30 foods, like for example, if you look at Okinawans, they ate purple sweet potatoes. It was 70% of their calories historically. Right? So sure. that's all they ate. And uh, so again, once you have the sturdy type of foods, you don't need anything else. Uh, as long as you make sure that, that everything is covered, uh, you're good to go. Now, if once in a while you can have quinoa or avocado, nothing's gonna happen, like, you know? Right. It's just that every, three days you have it, then, then uh, um, you know, there is a possibility that, that you're going to start developing problems. Interesting. Because I think of like coffee and functional coffee. So like people drink bulletproof coffee or they'll put ghee in their coffee or coconut oil or, or ashwagandha or whatever. So is that stuff, jury's not out, you know, well, still don't know? Well, I think the jury is that um, it's not done. Um, there is no evidence in any of the pillars that that's going to help you. Yep. And uh, you're just exposing yourself to an, uh, an uncertainty situation, particularly if you do it over and over and over. So if you do it with, for example, now in the book, I talk about autoimmunities are increasing 17% a year worldwide. Now, wow. there could be all kinds of reasons for it, but this is just an incredible increase, right? And my suspicion is that it has to do with now the gates opening and everybody now going and being exposed to all kinds of, not just being exposed once in a while, but continuously exposed to something that your microbiota, so the bacteria in your gut and your immune system there has to decide, what do I do with this thing? I've never sure. seen it before. Do I attack it or do I let it through, right? And that's a tricky uh, decision. And, and it may be that, you know, you eat avocado and you're fine for years. Then all of a sudden you take antibiotics 
you having an inflammatory process in your in your intestine and now that's a combination there's that so how does one in, know like what test do you take for this stuff or is it just like oh, i don't feel good i mean is it listening well, you to don't your... take any tests you just uh you know ask questions to your parents and grandparents what did you eat all the time did they ever cause any problems to you to you to grandpa to great grandpa if the answer is no we ate this Every day, like, you know. Or if they're like, we don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) What's that? Well, if I say to, like, my, uh, you know, coconut oil friend, it was one of the ones you brought up. Like, I have coconut oil or MCT oil. Like, I'll put that on my coffee. That's, like, a new thing. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely grandparents. Your grandparents are not going to. They had butter. I guess I I have ghee. I'll put ghee in my coffee. Yeah. But, again, I'm not uh, advocating that you eat what your grandparents ate. But out of the healthy things that you could pick what you so butter wouldn't be would be excluded sure uh, so i because a lot of people misunderstand and say well, well my grandparents had a very bad diet shall i have that so absolutely not i'm saying vegan pescatarian and out of the range of things spend a, a couple of weeks sure ask questions and you don't even have to ask your grandparents you can say where were you from um you know whatever place in in uh, in germany and say, well, what did people eat there, you know, back 100 years ago and 200? What's traditional? So what I'm worried about, so I actually did my 23andMe recently, and I'm like 85% Western European, so like Germany, like 80%, and then like a little French and, you know, mixed in everywhere else around Europe. So if I, if I like go back to 100 years, I'm like, okay, where were my aunt? They were eating like bratwurst. <laughs> like well, they weren't they weren't they were eating they were eating uh, uh vegetables too um sauerkraut it's just, it's just a matter of yeah these are the the, the famous ones the stereotype right but sure but if you take your time you'll see that they were eating all kinds of things yeah and um and i mean it's not like you have to eat it you have to do this for 20 years you just do it once once you learn what it was sure um then then you're okay and you know it's also okay if you um your parents for example uh to say most of it you can get from your parents what did they eat their whole life you know they had broccoli for 40 years 50 years and nothing ever happened to either one of them sure chances are you're okay like for example with lactose were they from Japan and did they both have milk for 40 years they you will have seen that they were sick sure right? because they're, they're lactose intolerant so um you know we, so we already know that this system works uh and and with gluten for example if you had the low the low gluten bread and and pasta whatever that they had and you have limited amounts in southern Italy I talk about this this dish pasta vianella and it used to be like they used to put a little bit of pasta and a ton of these green beans right that, that that's what they ate all the time for like four or five times a week uh, nobody developed gluten intolerance sure I've never seen a gluten i mean because you would know sure right you would know but maybe maybe one in a thousand sure. right so, so so we're talking about gluten and before before we move on to fasting which is a big thing you're known for you know, sugar, no good. We know that. I don't think we need to spend much time on that. Uh, alcohol. Yeah, alcohol is fine. Um, so is caffeine. And so alcohol, coffee, good. Yeah, wine, vodka, well, with, tequila. With some exceptions, which is um, um, if you have risk in the family, if you're at risk for certain cancers that are uh, for which alcohol is also a risk factor, then sure. probably not such a good idea. So you know, it's a matter of uh, going to through your family 
history and, and figuring out, you know, what cancers were common among your parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. And, um, and if it's not a clear uh, link, genetic link to some of these cancers that are alcohol uh, associated, then, um, then I think alcohol, most of the studies are suggesting sure. that alcohol is protective. You know, you, you live longer uh, by drinking moderately. So colon cancer is something that's affected my family. I'm curious what... Yeah, colon cancer may very well be one of the ones that... Uh, now I don't remember, there are three or four. The WHO lists them. Uh, there is an official list of the ones that for which alcohol is a risk factor. Um, you know, so you have to see, I mean, did one get colon cancer when they were 87? Sure. Or did four members get colon cancer in their 50s and 60s? All late in life, yeah. If it was B... Uh, then you might have to exclude alcohol, right. you know, and uh, yeah. But if it was A, then okay. I mean, it doesn't look like there is a strong genetic uh, Got uh, component. So I'm going to move on to fasting. And fasting is something that's a big part of a longevity diet. And explain what, what fasting is and what are some of the misconceptions and how it plays such a key role in yeah. one's longevity. Yeah, so fasting... Um, you know, for the longest time, was something that, that was just done by many religious groups, and, and it wasn't clear if it did any good. And I think most doctors, historically, and maybe even now, they think it's a bad idea. And of course, it can be a bad idea. I mean, you know, uh, if you are malnourished to begin with, if you're underweight, if you're anorexic, uh, if you have certain diseases, etc., it could be bad. But if it's done correctly, it's an extremely uh, powerful tool. And we discover in the last uh, however many years, 10 years or so, focusing on fasting, that in addition to um, regulating these genes that regulate aging, um, Taurus, Iskanase, PK, etc., um, they also regulate the regeneration, rejuvenation of multiple systems, meaning that um, when, while you're fasting, the inside of a cell starts eating itself by autophagy, so a process called autophagy, and also organs start eating themselves. Um, and, um, and That's a, a good thing? Yeah, it's a very good thing uh, because it's, a, it's something, it's a program that has been around since the beginning of life. You know, bacteria do this already. Sure. Right? And um, so for billions of years. And, and what happens is that basically, I, I use the analogy of a wood-burning train that is running out of fuel. I cannot make it to the next station. And so it starts, the, the engineer starts going around the train and takes the broken seats, the broken walls made of wood and burns them, right? So it, this is the, the process <laughs> of, of eating yourself sure. for fuel purposes. And that's exactly what the body does. You know, you're starving. And so the body says, well, first of all, I need to be lighter because I'm not going to make it to the next uh, uh, moment where I'll have food again. And uh, um, and then I want to use that part of myself as fuel itself, right? And uh, anyway, so this whole process then leads to uh, get re getting rid of damaged components, uh, burning them, and then turning on stem cells and turning on intracellular uh, mechanisms that then rebuild, right? So the, the train gets to the station. Now a lot of seats are missing and now you rebuild it, right? You put new new seats, new walls, and now all of a sudden you made it to the station and you have a train that might be 30% new. 
Um, <laughs> and um, and the body does that, does exactly that. Of course, you have to know what you're doing. This is why we abandoned the idea of fasting, water only fasting, and we came up with this fasting mimicking diets to make sure that, well, uh, both for compliance, um, but also for safety. Compliance meaning that if you, most Americans or most people around the world will not do water only fasting. It's very tough uh, to go for five days, let's say, with just water. And, um, and we learned that when we were doing a clinical trial on cancer at USC, nobody wanted to do it. The oncologist didn't want to do it and the patient didn't want to do it. Then we funded from the government, we developed a fasting mimicking diet, FMD, and that's you know between 800 calories and 1100 calories a day. Um, but also- For how many days? For five, well, it depends. And uh, for normal people, the, our trial was for five days. Five so, days. So five days, 800 to 1100 calories. Yeah. And then what about the other two? No, just five days. It's just five uh, days. 1100 calories on day uh, one, and then it goes to about 750, day two, three, four, five. And then six and seven, you can do whatever you, it's, it's over. And six, you just have, uh, you know, you have to, some recommendation. Got it. And uh, refeeding because you don't want to have a steak uh, at the end of this. Right. So what is, maybe just walk us through that because I think sometimes there's a disconnect. We don't talk a lot about calories and some people don't. It's just, so like, what does that look like from uh, like, like visualize like some foods you can eat if you're walking through that for five days? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, uh, low protein, low sugar, um, and uh, uh, relatively high carb, but in the in the form of vegetables and nuts. So right? like day one, I'm having like you know some kale, some spinach, a little piece of salmon, and some nuts. And no, 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 no salmon. Uh, so you know, no salmon. No, no. This is not the everyday diet. This is okay. something that people do, let's say, once every four months on average, right, for five days. And the job of this is really to reset the system, as I was saying, get rid of junk, um, turn on stem cells, turn on intracellular component, rebuild. And the rebuilding happens when you refeed. You know, it doesn't really happen sure. when you're fasting. <clears throat> Um, so it would be vegetables, it would be nuts, uh, but certain type of nuts, certain type of vegetables. And, uh, um, and you know, there's teas in, in the in the fasting making diet and uh, uh, chips. So it's, chips, uh, I mean like like kale chips, okay, for example. Okay. You know, for a kale, second, kale. all right, chips, I'm in. No, you know, let's no, get it back. No, 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 no starch, <laughs> no starches. But we also try to make it. Um, we make it uh, uh, so that people uh, have some treats in there. Because that's another... What uh, kind of treats do you have? Well, for example, we have some chocolate, uh, uh, dark chocolate uh, bar. What, what percentage of dark chocolate, though? Yeah, these are... These are high 70s, 80s. There's no milk. There's no animal Got products it. in there. So there's no milk. It's, it's high. Uh, but it's not a lot of chocolate, but just enough. Uh, very little sugar, but enough to be pleasant for people. Sure. And, and the reason for that is that, you know... It's not as good as it could be, but it's it's gonna it increases dramatically the compliance. So people um, are more likely to come back and do it again uh, sure. because they have that component. So well, you're losing. Well, this, sounds, this sounds attractive because you know I think there's a perception of fasting, and, and it is true because a lot of there are different programs, and some of those programs involve literally like not eating anything. So you actually have a program where you eat something for five days. Yes, you you eat something for five days, but of course that something is registered by the system as water. Sure. Right. So the, that's why it's a fasting mimicking diet. So every ingredient 
is being selected, tested in, 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 uh, in the lab first, and then move to clinical trials to uh, mimic fasting so um, the body doesn't recognize it as something that should right. reactivate the normal program. So it keeps you in this starvation response so mode. In your lab in USC and just studying what this has done, like what, what are some of the positive effects you've seen of people who've done the program over you know, months, years? You're saying people do this three or four times a year. Like, what are you seeing? Like, what's the benefit other than like weight loss and a reset? First of all, I mean, I think that um, we, uh, in Italy, when I first published the book, I, I made the mistake of, of allowing an option of people sort of cooking it up uh, by themselves at home. And that was a disaster, uh, and you get a lot of complaints from doctors and patients and, and lawyers too. Um, I've got someone starving myself over here, and you're making them sick, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, people end up, ended up in the emergency room because they didn't understand what it was. They made it too long, sure. too short. They added the wrong ingredients. They had too little salt. So there's so many things that, that can happen. So from then on, we basically said uh, it's better to do it what was clinically tested. It's called Prolon. I don't make a penny out of it, uh, so I, I, I donate all, all my uh, shares uh, and, um, and uh, I don't take uh, consulting from the company. But I thought it was important to standardize it so people uh, don't get hurt. So it's like the meal program. People can go online, they can buy it. So if they do it, they can yeah. actually get the food and they can follow the protocol. Yeah, they versus, just get a box right. and, and they get to their home. Then they get a call from a nutritionist. And so there's a whole system. It's not that expensive. Is I think a little bit over two hundred dollars, and if you could consider that you don't eat anything else for five days, you don't drink anything else, so Pretty on average, good. on average, you save uh, I don't know what the amount sure. is, but but close to to one hundred and fifty dollars. So uh, yeah, I, I think if you do it three or four times a year, in the end, it's almost nothing that you uh, right. spend. So what about like the long term health benefits? What do you see? Yeah, so the in the clinical trial where we tested this prolon. Um, we saw we did three cycles once a month for three months, and then we looked at people at the group of uh, uh, 100 patients uh, before and after the three cycles. And the changes were uh, remarkable. Uh, it was a, a reduction in cholesterol, uh, triglycerides, um, uh, blood pressure, uh, fasting glucose, uh, C-reactive protein for people that had uh, um, high levels of it. And, um, and also IGF-1, which is a marker, potential risk factor for cancer. Um, IGF-1? Yeah, insulin-like growth factor 1. And this has been associated with colon cancer, breast cancer, sure. prostate cancer. Um, and these were long-lasting effects. Uh, and they happen mostly in people that had the problem to begin, begin with, meaning that if you had blood pressure, let's say, 110 over 75, Nothing happened. Very good. Uh, but if people that had blood pressure 135 over 90, and then we, most of them we saw um, a significant reduction, um, suggesting as we see for for mouse work that it's really what I was saying earlier. It's fixing uh, the system rather than just lowering uh, these uh, these activities of of, of uh, or, or this, the level of these markers. Um, you know, and and what if I'm just like a normal you know healthy 30 something 20 something and i'm just like okay like I, I should probably do the there's no downside in doing this anyway and there are other benefits like if my cholesterol is fine all my all my all my numbers are fine so to speak well yeah um, i mean the diet uh, you know one of the effects for example is abdominal um, uh, fat visceral fat 
burning without loss of lean body mass. And there's not really many other things that can do this. And why that happens? Well, when, you have, when, when you're on the fasting making diet, the body goes to the, the biggest reservoir of fat that you have. Sure. And it just starts taking only from that. And also takes from the muscle. But what happens when you refeed, the muscle mass is uh, regenerated and uh, or goes back to the normal levels. And the fat, of course, does not, right? So it's really, you know, even if you're 20, uh, it's really one of the few ways that you can um, get rid of something that might start predisposing you to high blood sure. pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera, and um, without losing a muscle mass. And, and uh, yeah, so, so it's, um, I think it, uh, and another thing we see is the cognitive effect, right? And we very clearly mice, uh, meaning that the mice remember are much sharper. They remember better. They they are able to to find uh, to memorize where things are much more quickly. Uh, we have preliminary data on that in humans, but um, we still need to do work. But uh, that's we also suspect that uh, they will um, they will make uh, you know younger people sure. um, more uh, just healthier. Um, right and uh, and more effective. So something I do and a lot of people do. It's a different type of fasting, intermittent fasting. You know, have, they'll have dinner around six or seven, and then they wake up in the morning and they'll just have some coffee or maybe they put ghee or oil or something in the coffee to give them like a little energy, and then they won't eat till noon or one o'clock. Okay, neutral. No, no, bad. Big mistake. Yeah. Big mistake. Why is that a big yeah, mistake? Yeah. Well, big mistake because um, there are two problems with uh, um, doing long. I mean, in the book, I talk about 12 to 13 hours fasting periods. Those are five pillar sustained, meaning that there's very little negative data if you keep, uh, let's say, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., or 9 sure. a.m., 9 p.m. Very little data suggesting that's going to cause problems. If you go um, shorter than that, that's clear data uh, saying, you know, if you eat for 15 hours a day, and this is where the f eating five times a day comes in, which is not a bad idea, right? Um, so uh, if you eat 15 hours a day, you start having sleep problems, you start having metabolic problems. Now, if you fast for 16 hours a day, particularly in the scenario that you just gave, now you start seeing two problems. One is uh, goldstone formation. So there's a major increase in, in people that have more than 12 hours uh, fasting daily, major increase in the chance you're going to need your gallbladder to be removed. That's not good. And then um, the uh, um, multiple studies, epidemiological studies, uh, uh, now show that people that skip breakfast tend to have higher mortality and um, higher level of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, but is that because they're making poor choices right after that, where they're like going to Dunkin' Donuts? It could be all kinds of reasons. Um, but when you have a negative results like that in multiple studies, uh, you don't want to use a question sure. to make the decision. So well, now, why? Um, so my point is, uh, do first do no harm, right? So you want to say, look, based on the five pillars, stick with the 13 hours. Sure. And, and nothing is going to go so, wrong. Have breakfast. You can have a... a so let a, me ask you this. Yeah. If you put something in the coffee, and why I'm hitting on this is because I do it. I know a lot of people in the wellness world do it. So if they, the moment, let's say if they, and not to get into like is ghee or coconut oil or any of these things like bad or good, but the moment you drop something in there, like if you put a big thing of ghee or coconut oil or 
something that like has calories does that consider are you breaking the fast in your not opinion? really because those are fats right and the and it's uh, fasting mimicking properties right and uh so you're so not breaking the fast probably, you're still in it probably not you might it might help with the gallstones because uh, um you know part of it may may um, have to do with fats in the diet part, uh, the lack of fats in the diet so, but um, there is no, um, I mean, theoretically, uh, it might not affect the, the, the skipping breakfast associated problems. Again, you may be very well right that, you know, there may be an alternative explanation for why sure. skipping breakfast is bad, but until we have it and it's very clear, Understood. Uh, do you really want to put yourself not in a protected group, Sure. But in a, a risk group, sure, uh, you know, and, and for what reason? What you know, most people are not happy about skipping breakfast. Some people are, but I say most people may do it because they think you know having a sixteen-hour sure. or fourteen-hour uh, bre- uh, break fasting period is going to help. What them, do you yeah. usually eat for breakfast? I have uh, uh, green tea, black tea together, a whole lemon in the tea, and then uh, a uh, cinnamon raisin. Uh, Tossed with uh, blueberry or something. So uh, some fruit and got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So what's some of the new exciting science out there that's happening and, and where are we going to be in like, where's this conversation going to be in a couple of years? Yeah, I think that if you're looking at the uh, natural, the, the food-based interventions, I hope that the fasting mimicking diet you know, becomes uh something that the doctor and the nutritionist and the dietitians will have as a standard in their uh, office and uh, maybe the first way to go i mean and there could be other things that can replace it i don't know yet i haven't seen it but uh, um, i think it's uh, this idea of repairing the body rejuvenating before you start taking drugs I think that's uh, that's uh, important change is going to happen in the next twenty years. Also, because we're going bankrupt with the with the system of sure. you know every every problem you have, you try to put a band aid on it, which then gives you more problems and more problems. And by the time you're sixty years old, you have to, you take five or six drugs. Um, then, of course, uh, I think the the, the genomic, uh, as you were pointing out earlier, that's going to be important. You know, uh, for example, gluten. Or anything else, or avocado uh, intolerances. Uh, I think that eventually we might be able to sort of uh, do a genetic screen and say, oh, yeah, you're gonna have to avoid, you know, just have no no more than 30 grams a day of bread, sure. because otherwise <clears throat> you're most likely gonna develop gluten intolerance. And uh, so I think that that's gonna help a lot eventually when you know we'll have programs that can translate that for doctors and for dietitians, sure. so that they could just give you the list of what to do and what not to do with a cer- high degree of, of certainty. Sure. So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited every morning? I think uh, um, you know we are. I mean, I'm kept up by much more with the clinical work and diseases, right? So we're now working on type 2, type 1 diabetes, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, we have clinical trials that we're about to start on Alzheimer's. You know, those are harder challenges than, uh, you know, than uh, keeping somebody relatively healthy, healthier. Uh, but I think the, the ideas are the same. You know, if you rejuvenate the pancreas, uh, you can help somebody healthy, but you can help much more um, a type 1 or, or type 2 diabetic, but um, even potentially a type 1 diabetic that doesn't 
no longer produces insulin, or somebody with multiple sclerosis that has a dysfunction where immune cells attack uh, their own uh, oligodendrocytes. So, yeah, so I think that uh, in the next five years, we're going to see a lot of results in our clinical sure. trials. And uh, I say, you know, if a third of it uh, is positive, I think it would be an incredible success. Yeah. That's amazing. And if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you were first starting out in your 20s, what advice would that be? You mean by science-wise? Science, life, anything. Uh, life. Yeah, I think that um, music was a big part of my life back then, and uh, I abandoned it a little bit. And uh, uh, so maybe... Um, you know, I'll have an opportunity to uh, go back to it at some point. That would be great. Yeah. Well, we got everyone. Look, can you close with some? Can you can you give our listeners a little a little uh, taste? Do you have a guitar? We don't have a guitar, but you yeah, can't do, any, you can't do any vocals. No, 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 no vocals. No, no. I want to spare people from having to listen to me sing. <laughs> <laughs> next time, next time. Dr. Walter Longo, thanks so much for being here. Everyone check out The Longevity Diet and check you out at, uh, we'll drop by and see you at USC. Okay, sounds good. Sounds <laughs> All good. right, thanks so much. Okay, thank thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Thank you.